Welcome to The Joe Cohen Show. Join me as I share my experience with biohacking and invite top health experts to explore the latest technology, supplements, research, and resources for optimizing your body and brain. Hi, everyone. I'm here with Dr. Denise Furness. He's a PhD, is a molecular geneticist and registered nutritionist. She's a pioneer in the field of nutrigenomics and epigenetics with 20 years of experience in the area. She began her research and focusing on folate nutrigenomics, methylation, MTHFR, DNA damage. She's published in peer-reviewed journals and has won numerous awards for research and conference presentations. She founded Your Genes and Nutrition and began applying her knowledge in private practice. Thanks for coming on, Dr. Denise. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you. All right. So before we started, we were starting to talk about MTHFR. I think a lot of, there's a lot of focus on MTHFR in the nutritional genomics world. And I want to just want to hear your general take on it and uh, we can discuss it from there. Yeah. So obviously this is a gene that I know intricately. So started research in this space back in 2003 and testing it actually in a high-risk pregnancy clinic. So I was working in the fertility space. So the last 10 years I worked with anyone in clinic, but the first 10 years was in that fertility space. And there was an expectation that we would see an association with MTHFR and pregnancy complications back then in 2003, because prior studies had. But as I was saying to you just online before, actually, we didn't end up seeing an association, not nearly the strong association that others had found and the reality is when it comes to MTHFR with clinical outcomes like preeclampsia, which I first looked at, or recurrent miscarriage, cardiovascular disease, depression, whatever it may be, it's linked to a lot of outcomes. But the truth is the research varies and it varies because MTHFR is not diagnostic. It's not directly linked to that disease. What MTHFR does is literally convert 510-methylene tetrahydrofolate which is really important. It's not folic acid. Sometimes people say, oh, it metabolizes folic acid or you can't have folic acid if we have MTHFR. I'm not saying people should, but the reality is if far away from that. It's 510-methylene, which is actually a really important form of folate that's needed for DNA synthesis and repair. So it converts that form. It pulls it away from DNA synthesis, pushes it towards 5-methyl. So that's what MTHFR does. It makes 5-methyl, which most of the listeners will probably know. Everyone knows 5-methyl. And that is the important form of folate that is needed to donate a methyl group onto homocysteine. That then makes methionine with methionine synthase, methionine synthase reductase, methylcobalamin. And then that methionine can make S-adenosylmethionine, that universal methyl donor. So that's what MTHFR is doing in that pathway. It's literally converting one form of folate to another. And basically what the SNPs do, specifically the MTHFR 677, we really don't have a lot of good evidence, even for a functional effect with just the 1298. But the MT, unless it's the compound heterozygote, if you've got MTHFR 677 CT and MTHFR 1298 AC, and by the way, if you're listening and you're not, don't know your genetics, maybe look at your self-decode report and have a look at the results as I say, 677-1298. But yeah, the compound heterozygote, so one variant. Or you could type in MTHFR and yeah. you can still look at your MTHFR report. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that variant with the 677, one variant each, 
that has about a 50% reduction in enzyme activity. So that's significant. But MTHFR129A on its own, not so much. But the 677, the TT, so when you do have that double variant, it's homozygous, that is associated with a 60 to 70% reduction in enzyme activity. And that is significant. So I guess what I want listeners to know is that, yes, this actually has a big functional effect. It potentially can increase homocysteine, particularly if they've got low folate or the cofactor um, riboflavin is needed for FAD to bind. So there can be a big impact. However, if someone's got plenty of folate driving that cycle, plenty of B2, which we now know, didn't know it 20 years ago when I started, but newer research shows that increasing E, you know, these cofactors does increase enzyme activity. We can compensate. And even before we knew about FAD or riboflavin, studies had shown giving folate and B brings down homocysteine. So there is a functional effect, but it really has to be considered along with the person's diet, along with whatever else is going on. Because then occasionally too, they might be having folate and Bs and going, why is homocysteine still high? There could be toxins, could be other stuff going on. Okay, let's step back for a second. For people who are not following with the specific numbers, there's one main MTHFR SNP. And as me and you discussed, this is the most important SNP in all of functional medicine. And we agree there that it is the single most important SNP in that besides very like disease variants, such as April E or BRCA, right? Besides those, MTHFR is probably as a single SNP one of the most significant, if not the most significant, non-disease SNPs. So functional SNPs, we could call them, okay? Now, there's companies, there's whole companies that are just based on MTHFR. There's actually one company that charges $600 to get a test, and they just tell you MTHFR uh, and four other variants. Yeah, it's, and, and they make, their whole thing is just based on MTHFR, and they tell you, your whole astronomy based on MTHFR and your future, how long you're going to live. You've got this number of years to live. And it's, I, I think that's nuts. But, you know, and we, as you were saying, we underplayed it a little bit, right? Because when you look at, when you look at just the mainstream publications, there's a lot, there's things like there's conflicting research. You'll see one piece of research that says this, one piece of research that says that, and they're contra uh, contradicting. But we do know that this has a effect on this enzyme, which is what's important. So we know that you have to get enough folate if you have this enzyme. Now, some questions I have is, if you're getting enough methylfolate, does that negate the having this gene variant, the two Ts? So I will answer that, but just before I do, are you talking about someone charging $600, oh my God, for just MTHFR or a couple of things is not okay. And even when I moved into this world 20 years ago, we were taught never to focus on one gene. Even though we didn't know nearly what right. we know now, we still focused on, we started off with only six SNPs, but we also weren't charging. We were doing research, just trying to work out the stuff. But then as I went on and did my postdoctoral fellowship, we moved to 2030 and then we had a hundred SNP chip. So by 2012, just from a research perspective, we were using a hundred SNPs. And then of course, now look at what you do that we just, the, the knowledge and the technology is so much better, but you never want to be focusing on one SNP, even if it has a functional effect, because you don't know what's happening upstream, downstream. 
But yeah, getting And that's back- how, yeah, that, that's how I got into, when I got into it, I was also looking at a, a few hundred SNPs or whatever, a hundred. And then it just turned out that the science was shifting in a way that it's, hey, actually all of your SNPs have an impact in some way or another, yeah. right? And you have to actually look at all of them if you want a better prediction for diseases as a whole or conditions like, so that's what's called polygenic risk scoring. And there's the, the, generally looking at more SNPs is going to give you uh, a more accurate prediction and you're using AI and machine learning to do these things. But then there's still the functional medicine view is still going to be looking at certain SNPs that are very important. So I think it's definitely important that, that MTHFR, we, people have to know what it is they need to do if they have the SNP. Yeah. So with the methylfolate, yes, you are directly compensating in a way for the SNP, but the reality is you don't necessarily want to go high dose. I've been there, done that in the early days. We've learned a lot too. We also know a lot and a lot more about too, the regulatory mechanism. What's considered a, a high dose? Like over one milligram, like a thousand micrograms. So, you know, if you're thinking, okay. so in some senses, you might use five milligrams if someone's had neural tube defects. I'm talking like clinical stuff, or if someone's obese, if you know, if someone is truly obese, their recommended dietary intake for things like vitamin D folate increases significantly. They just, they've got more mass, but generally not going over one milligram. Most of the supplements these days don't have that. They might be 400 micrograms, 500, but some people do think. I'll what's the problem? Supplement. Yeah. What's the problem of going over one milligram? The reality, it depends on how much B12, B6, B2, all the other things you've got are. But the reality is you only have a limited ability to absorb. And also, if you start getting really high methylfolate, you can get something, if you go to the folate trap, but also happens obviously with B12 deficiency, where it builds up. And then there are these sort of feedback mechanisms where it says, well, we've got lots of 5-methyl, I'm going to slow down MTHFR. So you're actually then... Almost, so you've gone to compensate for the gene and you've gone to improve things, but you start slowing down the pathway. So it's a bit the same with giving SAME. If you give really high doses of 5-methyl or really high doses of SAME, you start to then cause these negative feedback loops in the pathway. Oh, so what happens if you slow it down? So what? Let's say the, the enzyme slowed down, but you have what you need from that enzyme. So who cares? Yeah. Playing, I... Yeah. I guess if you were going to continue using the supplement every single day, like if you just went, that's it, I know I'm going to give my body this with all the cofactors, the Bs, the B1, B2, B3, and I'm going to have that every single day, then maybe there is no consequence. But the reality is most people will stop supplements at some point. There are people obviously that take them all the time. But for example, when I had autoimmune stuff, I was really good with my supplements and I got better and I stopped. When you stop, taking supplements. And we do know quite a bit about folate, particularly because of all the pregnancy research. People can become deficient much faster because the receptors are all the same with iron supplements too. Everything, the receptors downregulate. Body's going, I'm getting plenty. I'm getting plenty. I don't need to absorb so much. And then you can actually get really low levels quite quickly. But the, the issue with the folate pathway or the folate trap is that it can then affect other parts of the pathway, like it might, you might then not get enough of 5-methylene for your DNA synthesis, and you might see like a functional folate deficiency because other bits of the pathway have slowed down as well. If you were giving all of the cofactors and maybe even having a bit of folinic acid, because that sort of 
sort of addresses the other side of the methylation pathway, you'd probably have no issues. But yeah, I think high dose, particularly of one ingredient, isn't good long-term and you don't actually get the results you want. Yeah, I think I take around two milligrams a day, but I also take pretty high doses of the other B vitamins. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, pretty high is it's around, you know, uh, 25 milligrams to 50 milligrams for each of the B vitamins. So B6, B1, B2, B3. Okay. Yeah. So they're decent doses. Yeah. yeah. If you're having plenty of the Bs, then you're going to keep moving because those enzymes require these cofactors to keep moving. It will be able to manage, possibly manage that amount of folate. The other thing to consider is to, I throw out a number. The reality is functional medicine practice. We're always thinking about the individual. From what I know about you, you train at a really high level, you're running a business, you're doing this, you're traveling. You could imagine that you would be, your demand on methylation would be actually quite high. So anyone that's- Why is that? Where, where is that coming from biologically? I'm thinking your catecholamines, you might be really chilled and you might actually manage all of this really well. But if you're anything like me when I've got lots on, which is every day of my life, the catecholamines are up there. So when you have all of this going on, you're stimulating that adrenaline and- You're saying when you're stressed out, you increase the need for methyl groups? 100%. 100%. If you're exposed to chemicals and toxins, specifically arsenic requires methyl groups. If you have high estrogen, thinking about COMPT, there's an enzyme called catechol-O-methyltransferase. That is the one that helps clear the adrenaline, but also our catechol-estrogens. So women with hormonal issues, high estrogens, methylation is really important. So in some situations, you might go, you know what, you do actually need more because your demand is higher. Or you've got digestive issues and you're actually not absorbing as much. Things like that. I have a question about the methyl groups let's say i'm taking trimethylglycine that is going to donate methyl groups right correct yeah and you're taking in the grams of the glycine whereas you're taking in the micrograms for the b12 folate maybe up to a milligram whatever right to me it seems like you're taking three grams of trimethylglycine that's a lot more methyl groups than the B vitamins. I, I, I don't know. Maybe not. How, how does that work? How does the... Yeah. So folate is actually a substrate in the sense it makes 5-methyl. It makes 5-10-methylene tetrahydrofolate. It's a component that helps pass methyl groups along this pathway to make samine, to give all the methyl groups. The trimethylglycine is actually glycine and amino acid. So you definitely want it. You'll use more of that. You do want in the grams, obviously. But the trimethyl is just saying that it's got three methyl groups attached to that glycine. So those methyl groups, which is a carbon and three hydrogens, might actually break down to a carbon and three hydrogens. They might not even stay in the system as full methyl groups, or it could actually be filtered into that methylation cycle. But it depends how your body absorbs it, how it uses it. But different to folate, which is like a structural component to make all of these things in the methylation pathway. Got it. Okay. So it's not so much the methyl groups that you're getting from the folate as much yes. as it's the actual folate. Correct. A hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. And if you compare that to folic acid, now, uh, there's a lot of people who demonize folic acid. I take the methyl folate, but and because it's definitely 
either equal or better, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I would. Yeah, no, I mean, I've seen some research that it, it's better, but what is the research that that it's better? Let's say, mm. Let, take us through that research. So I will disclose, and hopefully people won't be listening, going, "Oh my God, she used folic acid." But the truth is, twenty years ago, that's and that's still what is given actually in the public hospital system here in Australia, like right. you know, clinical guidelines. Our Them in the US. Yeah, yeah, our medical guidelines say 400 micrograms or 500 micrograms, whether in New Zealand, Australia, whatever, of folic acid. So that is still the guidelines. We have actually lots of good evidence around folic acid. And to be honest, in our recurrent miscarriage clinic, we had an 80% success rate and we were using folic acid. This isn't a public hospital. So it's all research. We weren't funded by supplement companies, none of that stuff. So I'm definitely not anti-folic acid. But the truth is we now have better, more natural formulations and moving into the space of functional medicine 10 years ago, I now work with a different population too. It's not people in a public hospital. I work with the patients that are often a little bit more sensitive and also they're just looking for the best. The clients I see now today want the best of the best and I'm going to give them the best of the best. It's a more natural form. Folic acid is more stable. Like if you look at the molecular structure, which is why it's in fortified food, why it's in supplements, but that mm. is a little bit more difficult. Like it actually requires more energy for the body to unpack that. And it has to bind to an enzyme called dihydrofolate reductase, DHFR. DF DHFR has a limited capacity to, to actually utilize, bind to that folic acid, having lots of folic acid can be an issue because then the dihydrofolate reductase can't even manage that amount. And then what happens is you're getting lots of folic acid, synthetic folic acid in your bloodstream. It's not even actually getting into the cells and that can be a big mm. issue. It's actually the same thing with bees. Often people will come to me and say, oh, I can't have B12 because my serum B12 is through the roof. And then you go and do methylmalonic acid, a functional marker which builds up from the mitochondria if they're low in B12 and they're actually deficient in B12 in their cells. So when you start having some of these more synthetic forms or they're not being absorbed so well, it can artificially look like you've got lots in your blood, but you're not actually absorbing it. And mm. we don't really know the consequences. There's been some little bit of research suggesting maybe high levels of folic acid, synthetic folate in the blood might be linked with cancer. We definitely don't have proof of that. I've seen that research. Yeah. Yeah. The question is, I've seen that proof and I've seen some people speculate that methylfolate might not have that same risk factor as just the folic acid. But my question is, is there any clinical trials comparing folic acid with methylfolate or is it just based on theoretical? And again, I take methylfolate, so I don't mind doing stuff based on theoretical, but I also want to understand if there's evidence behind what I'm doing or it's just, why not? It's cheap enough. I, yeah, I wish, oh God, I wish I could be right here and say to you, yes, there's these evidence. It comes down to funding when you do research, which was my life for the first 10 years. It's who's going to fund this without banging on too much about what I was doing. I guess part of me probably leaving academia after my postdoctoral fellowship, it's like associate professor, this, that, I was on a path. It became apparent to me that doing randomized controlled trials, which is very difficult, which is the gold standard to change things like folic acid, which is where we were getting to. We weren't wanting to say, 
don't have folic acid because I didn't know that back in 2007 when I finished my PhD. But what we found is that folic acid on its own actually wasn't beneficial. You still had a lot of risks of pregnancy complications. You need the B12, the B6. So what we wanted to do is change clinical guidelines to say have a B complex with folate. They all work together. So long story short, we went through the process. We were going to do a randomized controlled trial. You get to ethics and they're like, if you know that there's an issue with having folic acid on its own, we can't ethically put this through, through, through the, through ethics and allow you to have this research study of comparing just folic acid with a B complex. So that just, that blew my mind that we couldn't even do the research. So there are limitations with things like that. Oh my gosh. Yeah, because you want to improve things, right? You want to say, okay, but they're like, if that means that you think that more of these people are going to have miscarriages or pregnancy complications because so many people are low in B12 or need this or need that, they weren't okay with it. But that was the standard of care though. Exactly. That's the standard of care. And we need to improve that standard of care because we have learned so much. Those studies that introduced folic acid, 1990s, little tube defects. Yeah. So there's no clinical trials comparing methylfolate with folic acid. Is that the conclusion? No, none. They're separate. We've got some studies with methylfolate. We don't even have a lot, to be honest. We've got some. We've got some to suggest it's still viable. It's absorbed. It brings down homocysteine. It looks like it's helpful. So enough for us as practitioners that are registered trying to do the best for our patients to feel confident that we can use it. It's not going to cause harm, but... To actually say that it's better, we don't have that research. Okay. Yeah, that's that's thing. So for but so it's mainly based on theoretical understanding of how the body works and why this would work better. It's not and it's clinical observation. Yeah. That's yeah. natural. Okay. And it's more it's a more natural form. So folic acid is a man-made synthetic form with some extra the way they've got the glutamic acids, like the chemical structure is just a little bit okay. different to make it more stable. Whereas the 5-methyl is more true to the, the natural form. So if you're eating folate in food, you're actually going to get methylfolate in foods. And it, it, does it come in methylfolate or folinic acid? So folinic acid, the 5 famil um, tetrahydrofolate, yeah, that you, when you're eating foods, you're actually getting a range of different folates, but predominantly, mm-hmm. I think I'm correct there. I've been saying that for a long time, but I think the research I read was a long time ago, but I don't think we have anything to, has updated our knowledge of the percentages of folates we get in food, but I'm pretty sure the 5-methyl is the predominant form in our food, but you will get the methyls, the 5-10-methyls, the famils, there's other types of folate and the folinic acid is actually a 5-famil tetrahydrofolate. Yeah. That sort of comes okay. in a different part of the pathway. Okay. In the, but we don't get folic acid. So that's the one, the synthetic folic acid that is supplemented. We don't get the reason why they use it is because it's more stable in the food system. It doesn't right. break down as easily. Okay. Folic acid in supplements would break down as well. Folic acid generally has a really I mean, shelf. Well, methylfolate. Let, let's put yeah. methylfolate supplements would break down. Yeah. So you do want to, so they generally have their expiry date is shorter. Um, yeah. You want to be more cautious. So for example, I keep mine in the fridge. I live in a hot place. I'm in the sunshine coast. It's humid. It's hot. Mm. But I'll always keep mine in the fridge. You want to keep it dark. You just avoid these things. But yeah, the folic acid is very stable. The 5-methyl, not so much. Okay. Interesting. And so that goes with the supplements as well. And interesting. Okay. So with 
regard to methylation. So there's a lot of, we're about to release a methylation report. Uh, when you're, you were studying methylation as a whole or mainly MTHFR? Methylation. So looking at the entire pathway, in addition to not just the SNPs and measuring folate and homocysteine, and we're also measuring methyl groups on the mother's okay. DNA and also on the cord blood or, yeah, or, or cord blood or cord tissue. So comparing methylation patterns. So literally looking at methylation. So my stuff has been nutrigenomics and epigenetics, but very much focused on methylation. Do you have, by the way, two of these variants or one of the MTHFR? I feel like, uh, how, how would you be so passionate about it if you didn't have them yourself? I had no. I, mean, I guess you researched them. I No, I actually, to be completely honest, I was working in, I was a geneticist, but working in virology. Like I just come out of doing a degree. I never thought I'd do a PhD, postdoc, all that stuff. I was working in virology, thought I loved it, but long story short, some animal work came in after about a year. I was like, I just couldn't, I couldn't do animal work. I was fine in the lab, just sequencing and just, and oh. now that we've had COVID, everyone would know what I did because I used to look at viruses and try to work out what were the genetic variations that allowed them to jump from an animal to a human. So that's what I used to do, oh, work cars wow. and all of that stuff. So I was doing that and then, yeah, had to do some animal stuff. I was like, I got to get out of this. I can't do this anymore. I thought this was my dream job. And then I learned about nutrigenomics and I was like, oh my God, diet and genetics and always been into exercise and diet. And I was like, this is amazing. And then Michael Fennick is the leader in Australia. He's actually one of the you know gurus around the world in nutrigenomics, good friends with Jeff Bland and everyone over in the US. And yeah, so he was advertising this PhD in pregnancy. And to be honest, I wasn't even that interested in fertility. I just wanted to understand how our genes could affect our diet just from my own personal interest. I don't actually, my methylation stuff is actually quite strong, but even though genetically it's not an area that you would focus on, if you were reviewing the, the gene report, you wouldn't go, oh, methylation, but the reality is the lifestyle I lead, it's still something I want to support because I am go, I live life to the max and I love that. So it's still an area that I want to support. But what I do have is the APOE4 allele and that mm. is, I'm one or two. Only one, thankfully, but I'm grateful to work in this space and understand that because my mum did pass. She got early onset dementia at only 54. So, you know, mm. she was showing signs wow. and symptoms not much older than what I am right now. Like I'm 45 and by the, her late 40s, she was not okay, not driving. I got to figure out what you're doing. You look like you're 35 or something. Oh my God, I'm 45. There's a lot of biohackers that are like live to whatever age, 200, and then they look like they're 90 years old and they're like 50 or something. I don't know. I'm just making this up. But well, biohackers, a lot of them look a lot older than they are. Yeah. I wouldn't call myself a biohacker, but the truth is that's what I am. Like when you are delving into- Do you put on sunscreen? Uh, I'm starting because, yeah, I'm starting. And I, I used to be- crazy and run in the middle of the day and I didn't wear sunglasses because I wanted them to not so superficial right and vain but I didn't want to have glasses marks but now now oh, okay. I don't do that anymore because my face is definitely starting to see the signs. But you, it looks like you have uh, a, a clear face. I don't see any wrinkles. Oh so do you. Maybe like the computers <laughs> could well when I'm in the US next year we could meet and then if I do have wrinkles in real life don't tell me anyway. But I did biohacking because I guess that was even my interest back 20 years ago it's how let's learn about genetics and how I can tweak my diet to be 
as healthy as I can be. And yeah, and through my research and even now beyond methylation and even my postdoc, we started looking at inflammatory genes and vitamin D and a lot of stuff like that. And I've had autoimmune stuff in the past, but now I definitely work a lot in the aging space, almost each end of the spectrum. So fertility and healthy aging based on me having APOE, wanting to know what to do and, and doing a lot of epigenetic testing too, which is cool. For the last 10 years, I've just been doing genetic testing in clinic, but as of this year, I'm now doing epigenetic testing because before we really could only do it in a research sense. And I don't have a lab anymore. Now I'm a practitioner. So when I had a lab, I used to do it, right. but we could only do it in a research sense. Whereas now we have commercial epigenetic methylation testing. Is that what you were saying you are getting into that kind of methylation testing or more just complete methylation reports on genetics? Yeah, I think more just methylation in general. So when in the functional world, when they talk about methylation, they're usually not talking about methylation in terms of these aging tests, right? Mm. So you're referring to these epigenetic aging tests, like pay, rate of aging or things yeah, like that? Yeah, that's what I'm doing at the moment, tying that okay. in with longevity genes like FOE. And True diagnostic are you using or? I am, yes. So I do. Okay, so I had him on the podcast, Ryan. We were talking about ah. that. Yeah, yeah. So Ryan yeah, and I, yeah, he's pretty excited that I just found out about that. It just launched in Australia. So they asked me to do education in Australia because I've done epigenetics and then I took it upon myself to start a trial. So we had 60 people, we did three month intervention, to see if we could reverse biological age. And now we've extended that intervention to six months. So yeah, it's pretty exciting. Yeah. The only issue is there's issues with everything, by the way. I'm just, so I'm just talking out loud here. It's just that it's not a hundred, it's not causal. You can't figure out if you reduce this biological age, then you're actually going to live longer. That's the only issue. It's, I, I feel like it's an advanced marker so that if you're somebody who's doing a whole bunch of stuff, you want to make sure that you're somewhere in the ballpark of lower rate of aging rather than quicker aging, yeah. right? Yeah. You want to make sure you're not aging quicker or age, like find out what your biological age, are you older? Are you younger? And then I guess my question this year has been, if you are older or even younger, can we change it? And how quickly can we change it? Because as right. a practitioner, I want to know, is this going to add value? And that's why I started this trial. Because it's like, well, if I'm going to introduce... What was your pace of aging, by the way, if you don't mind My me pace of aging the first time was about 0.79 or something. And then it came down to 0.62, okay. I think. 0.62. Wow. In that's a huge jump. Yeah. Okay. And what were you doing during that time? Yeah, this is probably the bit why it would never make a randomized controlled trial is because I'm doing what practitioners do in that I, the protocol hit on everything as in it was an intensive protocol. Six serves of veggies, 1.6 to two grams of protein a day. We did diet, we did supplements, methylation stuff, ubiquinol, resveratrol, which is a big question mark in the world right now, but I put that in there. There, there was supplements, there was diet, there was exercise, 30 minutes of movement a day, a bit of breathing, so many things, how much water to drink, cold showers. We hit it hard with everything that we think could be beneficial because I did want to know, can we see a difference in three months? And and if, mm -hmm. and if not, and actually Ryan said he thought it was a little bit short, too quick to see changes, but we have in most people. But interestingly, my Dunedin patient dropped a bit significantly, but most people's has only dropped and some of them are really compliant. There's a great group of people, 
by about 0.1. There hasn't been a big difference where I was expecting a bit more difference in the Dunedin pace because they tell you that when people start fasting and stuff and you get such a big difference with, mind you, we didn't really do, we did time-restricted eating, but not long extended fasting. So, yeah. Interesting. Okay. Mine was uh, 0.72 the first time I took it. I haven't taken it again yet, well, but was- yeah, it's, again, it, it doesn't, I don't, I, I personally wouldn't change that much based on the test. It's a great result. Like you don't, if you came out above one. I think it's a, it's a great like result. It. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's yeah. a good result. I'm just saying what do, there's things that technically you could do just to improve your pace of aging. And I don't like for me, just doing something based to lower my pace of aging, I wouldn't do. I would do it based on if there were other factors as well, right? Basically what I like to look at all of the factors and then make a decision based on that. I think it's a good test in the sense of if there's, if there's something, if your rate of aging is higher and you want to get lower. And so it's one of the factors that you can look at if you decide to do a certain action or take a certain supplement. We're going to actually be likely integrating that. Within Self-Decode, we have the main recommendations engine. I don't know if you've seen that. It's a relatively new feature. I have, have seen Have you seen it, the yes. recommendations? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And right now we include, so we're including symptoms and conditions in there. We're going to include, right now we include genetics and lab tests. If you upload lab tests, the recommendations um, store differently, right? They get prioritized differently. And then we're also going to include symptoms and conditions, lifestyle risks, and other factors with that. And, and so one of the other factors where we might be including is the epigenetics. So if we can get very clear results from what to do, we would say, okay, this recommendation would be good for these genetic risks, these symptoms and conditions you have, maybe these interests that you have, these lab tests that you have, these lifestyle risks, and then also these epigenetic factors. The issue with the trait yeah. test, yeah, is a bit like what you're saying though. And with genetics, we can like with APOE, we'll go, okay, do we want to focus on lipids, toxins? You, you want to be like this stuff around seismic stuff with diet. With MTHFR, we're thinking support methylation, folate bees. Like you said, with the pace of aging, it's like, it doesn't necessarily point you in the right direction of what you might actually need. And I would imagine someone like you, Joe, you're probably hitting on all of the things that I mentioned in the protocol anyway. So what do you really change? And I think it will be, for me, it probably will never be a standalone test. A little bit like genetics too, even though I do genetics, that is my bread and butter. That's what people come to me for genetics, but it's not usually a standalone test. There's going to be blood biomarkers and other things going on. So I think it's for those that are genuinely interested in this area, find out what's their biological age, what's their pace of aging. And then let's say they're not at the level that you're at, Joe, too, and sort of doing a lot of these things, they might then implement some things and you can say, come back, not necessarily in three months, like my my intervention was quite intensive. That's a, a patient or a client could come back in 12 months and say, let's just see how you're going and having a look at it. I guess for me personally, with my mum's history and me with the APOE, even though I didn't think I was worried because I think I'm quite healthy, I think as I'm starting, particularly the last few years, because I'm remembering that my mum at such a similar age was showing signs and symptoms. Oh, wow. There is this part of me that's like, I just want to be, even if it's a placebo effect, right? It's, I just want to feel like I'm on top of this. And I am, I feel great. Like life's good from a health perspective and I'm definitely not perfect. I'm not sure how good you are with everything. I still 
live life and like to have a drink and go out. I'm definitely not super clean, but I, I'm good. Oh, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent with everything. No way. Yeah. Yeah. My thing yeah. is, how do you not be a hundred percent with everything and then still get good results? Because you're never going to be a hundred percent with everything. Yeah. And I also think you don't want to be a hundred percent. Like I've been there where I definitely was orthorexic in the sense where I was obsessed with food. Like I've been to that place. I developed an autoimmune disease. You know what I mean? I was like, I was full on about what I Which ate. autoimmune disease? I had graves. Diffu I had thyroid. Yeah. Autoimmune okay. disease. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I was wiped out for a year. I got really sick. And it's, I guess, a good part of my journey because it led me to- Do you take thyroid hormones now or- No, I didn't have radioactive iodide. So that was, I guess, okay. part of my- I guess as a geneticist and understanding epigenetics, when the endocrinologist said, oh, you've had aggressive graves, we've got to remove your thyroid, radioactive iodide. I was like, but why did I get it? They couldn't answer anything, couldn't give me any reasons. And I just said, I don't want to jump to that. And he actually said to me, well, you won't have any more children and you'll die early. So I'm crying my eyes oh my out. And I look back now and he wasn't saying it to be malicious. I think he just genuinely thought this is the only way to treat your condition. Right. But anyway, I went away, thought about it. My husband was on the same page as me. We're like, we're not jumping into anything. And I just changed my lifestyle significantly. Learned all about thyroid. Just This is how long ago? It would have been 2012. It's when I actually left academia. So I wasn't able to work anymore for a while. Every Because of that? Yeah, I couldn't even think, mm. let alone, wow. God, I won't go into too many. Some people, if they listen, they might know me, but it got pretty gross. Like I couldn't even control my bowels. It was bad. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah, yeah. What was your like? T4 or T3 like? All I know is that when, so the story is that I flew back to Adelaide to the lab, even though, because I was meant to be writing papers, even though I couldn't think. So I'd left the lab and I had all this medication to get on the plane because I just felt hungover and nauseous every day. And I got in there and the obstetrician just looked at me and just outpatients now. And anyway, I had my bloods done. They diluted them three times and I had to stay in hospital for two weeks. They're like, you're thyrotoxic. They just looked at me. And I'd been going to doctors and they're like, it's stress, it's this, that, and just no one really taking me seriously. You've got high blood pressure. I'm like, I'm dying. And I guess wow. maybe my personality, maybe a bit too resilient. I don't know. Like it just, it, it should have been, oh, oh, my eyes were popping out. Like I'm so lucky they've oh gone. My gosh. Yeah. I've got a, a license from that time. And even just looking back at photos and stuff, I'm just like, Popeye, it's terrible. Wow. Um, but and yeah. so how long did it take you to get rid of it? So from the time I started the medication, so I did take antithyroid, like carbimazole, mm. and it took me 10 months to come off it. It took me 10 months and then I was really well. And I have to say, when I got well, I probably felt the best I've ever felt in my, even back to like my twenties and stuff. Like I just felt so wow. good. You what know, was felt, like the main things that you did that, that you helped? Get um, off even though I said I was obsessed with food, I probably still had, you know, I used to train at a really high level. I used to over-exercise. Mm. You know, so I was working in a really high, managing international research studies, did some fitness stuff on the side, like a little fitness business, but also trained like a crazy woman. I had hardcore Thursdays, train in the morning, train at lunchtime, train at night, mm. probably not eating enough for what I was doing, but also I would don't talk about this much, but then probably go and have some kind of carbohydrate sugar binge because I guess I was just so deplete of stuff. So I guess mm. I, I, one, I couldn't exercise anymore anyway. There was a lot of rest, a lot of recovery, but stopped all the sugar. No coffee, was a coffee addict. I couldn't have it when I got really sick. It would go through me. But prior right. to that, no caffeine, no sugar, no 
And yeah, just started taking really good care of myself and also let go of a lot of stuff. There's a lot of mental stuff to go through, right? Like that obsessive thing, just who am I? Do you think it was like overactive nervous system stress, pushing yourself too much? Just more, yeah, just and just learning derailed the immune system. Yeah, what's important in life? It doesn't matter if the dishes aren't done. It doesn't matter if you don't do the dishes. Sometimes I think you just get so caught up in the life that you want or who you want to be. And it's, oh my God, what's important, right? It's just a big, it's yeah, like, yeah. I think when someone gets sick, depending on, on who you are, if you're happy to not go the mainstream model and work through it, it is such an eye opener to who you are and probably on the wrong, I like had a, if, yeah, you're yeah, on the yeah. wrong life, right? Yeah. I ate really well. I started taking supplements, basic stuff, bees, fish oil, magnesium, but I just really chilled out and just took really good care of myself and thought about who I want to be and what I want to do. And that's when I started my business and got into functional medicine and left. And then, and so the Graves was gone after that? I, after my second child, I had a little flare. Obviously I knew the symptoms. I didn't get nearly as sick. The second I got the palpitations, I felt a bit lost a bit Mm -hmm. away. I went straight to the doctor, went back on medication. Sadly, it took me 18 months to get off the medication. Again, they were pushing me to have my thyroid removed. I think because I'd recovered once, I was a bit slacker. Like I was, yeah, I, I when it all happened, I, I planned to take a year off and then I didn't. And I don't know if Chris Shade and I was invited to an event and Estelle was only five months old and it was Chris Shade. It was Robert Lusty and one other guy. And we were all, it was only four speakers and they were like three amazing people and me. And we were asked to speak for three days in an event. I was like, I can't say no to these are like an amazing opportunity. I said to my husband, he took time off work. I'm like, can you come? We've got the baby. So I was actually coming off stage to breastfeed, right? And I just left that event. And I think that was the trigger. I absolutely loved it. I don't regret going there, but it was too much. It was too much with the baby and, and I'm obviously predisposed. And after that, I had a few little things at the thyroid. And then I just, it just took me a really long time. But when I say 18 months, when I did finally get better, it's when I actually cleaned up my whole act again. And it was like, and I mm. actually reduced my work. Do you measure, were you measuring your antibodies? Yes. And I still do always. Yep. Yep. And, and are they like non-existent or low? They're low now. So they're fine. So I do check my thyroid and I always do my antibodies, even though mainstream medicine says just do TSH. I always do mm-hmm. because actually the second time I got sick, I didn't just have a mini thyroid flare. I developed severe psoriasis. It was terrible. Wow. Like you don't had one. But you don't remember the uh, exact T3 or T4 that you had? Not the first time. I didn't even really know what it was. Second time actually wasn't that bad. TSH was below zero, like not detectable. What it, Below t- zero means, what does that mean below zero? <laughs> TSH was not detectable. No thyroid Not detectable. Oh my gosh. So thyroid stimulating was not detectable, but the T3, T4, like not, not crazy high thirties, maybe like somewhere out of range, like as in you truly are. T4, the range would be five, four, 4.5 to 10.5. So are we dealing with the same range? Slightly different. So, cause are you nanograms per, so I think the Australian reference range. I was about three times higher than what you should be. So my Then the top end of the range or the average? Yeah. Oh, wow. So my, yeah, I'm pretty good at just must somehow deal with it until it's, until uh, it's in my body goes, okay, no more. 
But yeah, TSH was non-detectable and about three times above the range. But I did respond pretty quickly to medication again. What about T3? Does your T3 go up in accordance with T4? Yes. 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 Okay. So it wasn't just T4. Sometimes people have weird pictures or sometimes it's subclinical or it's just the T3, T4, not TSH. Mine is all of it. But I do know the first time that they had to dilute my bloods because it, there wasn't even a number. Like it was too high. Do you want to hear about the one health hack that is sure to change your life? Okay, here it is. Subscribing to this podcast. 67% of listeners aren't following the show, so please don't forget to show your support by hitting the follow button now. You'll not only be supporting the show, but also investing in yourself and your health journey, all while helping to keep us ad-free. So getting back to methylation, I want to understand how can somebody measure it? So I know we spoke about homocysteine, right? Mm -hmm. I guess number one is I measure homocysteine as frequently as possible to see. I, I try to get mine under nine. What, what is the range you're looking at for homocysteine? For sure. Under nine. Under nine is associated with lower risk of cardiovascular disease. Though, as we said, just before we jumped on in our five minutes of chatting before we went live, it's not a strong predictor like they initially thought in the 90s, but there is an association. So under nine is associated with lower risk, lower likelihood of getting cardiovascular disease. And also when we think about Alzheimer's dementia, which is obviously a vascular disorder as well. And Dal Bredesen, obviously over there in the US, Alzheimer's, um, one of the, the leaders in that area, even people that have early stage cognitive decline, he says if you can get uh, homocysteine down. A bit lower though, closer to sort of seven. He says, if you, that's if people have actually already got some cognitive stuff going on, but generally under nine is really good. You don't want to be under five because then you don't have enough of the basic building blocks to make methionine and glutathione and stuff like that. So you're okay. So you're looking for that five to nine range. I haven't seen ever anyone under five. <laughs> oh, have I you? do. Yeah. Okay. So it's interesting. The first 10 years of my life, public hospital, it was always high. That was always the right. issue. And that we were trying to bring homocysteine down. Now, I don't know this for sure, but I think it's when, yeah. So actually my homocysteine went really low in graves, but obviously that's a unique sort of situation. But I think if there's a high level of toxins too. So when you're thinking about homocysteine being at that junction, supporting either methylation or actually also transsulfuration, which is that other pathway that supports the detoxification. So if homocysteine is being pulled down because someone's had a high exposure to chemicals or toxins, perhaps it's depleting that homocysteine or they have a really low protein diet. That's the other thing I've seen when homocysteine has been really low. They're just mm -hmm. real, not eating enough protein. But, so they're not know, taking in enough methionine and therefore it's not converting to homocysteine. Yeah, because it's, it is an, even though it's, it's an intermediate amino acid so that you're not actually eating the homocysteine, but it's obviously from that pathway, exactly that methionine can be then. But when it's under five, it's usually something's really wrong. Not, yeah, yeah. It's not like, oh, this, this, there's like some superficial methylation issue. There's, okay, either you're just like not eating enough, you got some condition, right? Yeah, there's generally something. And if you, even I've got one patient now who she eats so well, she used to have an eating disorder. So I wonder if maybe there's some major gut issues going on and she's not absorbing or uh, I'm not sure. We're just doing some stool analysis now, maybe an infection or something. There's got to be something else, but hers is really low. She's an unusual case where I just don't know what it is at the moment, but there's got to be something because she actually is eating enough protein 
and she lives a super mm-hmm. clean life. But most of the time, they're the issues. But as you said, high is is the thing that is a concern for most people. Okay. And is that, would you say that's the best marker for methylation status in the body? I guess as a, it's an indirect marker, obviously you're not really measuring methylation, but it's a good indication that if something's going wrong with methylation, because if it's high, then maybe you are low in folate or people are more likely to have the MTHFR SNPs if it's high. There's the genetic, you know, factor there. Maybe enough folate, not enough folate Bs. Yeah. And as I said, if it's low, then you're finding out that methylation also is compromised. If met if uh, homocysteine's low and actually this person that I'm talking about that came to me actually ended up having Down's baby that's, and we found out the homocysteine was really low. And I think that's probably part of that too, like just not having enough of the methyl groups to support everything mm. though, because there was no other genetic risk factors for that. And she's young and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. If homocysteine is low, does that mean that there's too much methyl groups or not enough? Not enough because you're then not making the methionine, not making the acetanzyl methionine, which is the methyl donor for everything, for the epigenetics, for the comps, the adrenaline, the hormones. For all but the in, in another way, if homocysteine is low, that could also mean that if, if there's too much methylation, no? Because it's taking like the, it could be. Maybe it's, were you saying that it's just like just going through really quickly, like it's all being yeah, used up? Yeah, I, I think you'd have to check the methionine as well, like serumethionine yes. levels. Yeah. So with that and asking about testing, I do think that homocysteine is probably the easiest test. It's fairly, but the reality is it's still, most of the time, it's a good indication of methylation, but sometimes there can be other factors at play. It's not a direct marker. So you can get obviously like a methylation profile. And if we're allowed to mention labs, I guess you mentioned true diagnostic. I don't know who you use, but doctor's data in the US, you can get that methylation profile. So you get the methionine, the acetanzyl methionine, you know, homocysteine. So that's a good thing. Or I do quite a lot of organic acids testing. That's probably the thing I do the most with the genetic testing, an organic acids test. And then with that, I'll get like a methylmalonic acid for B12. I'll get the folate marker. The one I use gives me uracil and thymine, two DNA bases. Okay. And then if there's a change there that's associated with folate deficiency. So I'm looking at functional markers. But for, the, for people that aren't doing functional testing and not working with a practitioner, don't have access to those things, homocysteine is a pretty good marker and most of the time is a good indication if there's methylation problems. And do you think the organic acids tests are good markers for methylation? Yeah, as long as you are using a reliable lab, getting these metabolites, I do think are good. And because I, I don't do as much blood testing anymore, I used to do a lot of blood testing. I used to be based in a medical practice. Now I work from home online. But when mm. I was in the clinic, we're doing lots of blood testing too. And I felt like the bloods do, I guess, reinforce, confirm the organic acids too. So I do have faith in those kind of results. And actually the methylmalonic acid, I think that is a better marker than, as I said, the B12 bloods and stuff anyway. Okay. So if the methylmalonic acid, if it's too, let's see, if it's too high, it's builds up if there's a deficiency. It, it means, right. It means that there's a B12 deficiency. Correct. And do you often see that somebody has a high serum B12 and high methylmalonic acid? Yeah. So I was like almost one of my first patients moving into this world. And initially it confused the heck out of me, but it was a great introduction into functional testing and things. And one of the doctors in the clinic said, but you do methylation. She's got really high serum B12. I don't want to give her a prenatal. She can't have a prenatal with B12. 
don't want to give her folate on her own. I told them not to do that. And then that's when I did the methyl malonic acid. And that was really early on when I just started moving away from the public hospital. And I was like, oh my God, her serum B12 is so high. Her methyl malonic acid well, is also high, but suggesting she's B12 deficient. Right, and right. I've seen that over and over. And it's not common, but I've seen it many times. And then you need to think about, again, when we're in the clinic, we might've done intramuscular, have a B12 shot, but now I don't have those sort of things around me. So it might be like sublingual or liposomal or other ways to maybe help with absorption, higher doses, and we can generally rectify. Things. But it just, if, if it's in the serum, that means that it was absorbed through the gut, I right? I actually think these people probably have like intestinal permeability, leaky gut. So mm. it's actually not probably going. So B12, which is pretty amazing when you look at the chemical composition, it's huge. It's got a cobalt mo molecule through it. It's really hard to absorb actually, but it needs to bind to intrinsic factor. It needs to bind to transcobalamin. There's all these steps. It's actually a bit more complicated to, to absorb, transport, and then yeah, utilize the B12. So I think these people, this is not fact, this is not published. This is just my clinical observation. Generally, I'm thinking about gut issues. They're just absorbing straight into the bloodstream. It's not going through the proper channels and getting into the cells as it should. Okay. So you're saying if it was absorbed in the proper channels, then it would go into the cells itself. You would imagine it would exactly. Yes. Yep. The other thing is sometimes okay. people are having B12, again, more like cyanocobalamin, which I think, and it's not the methylcobalamin, it's not your adenosyl, the hydroxy, which is found in the food forms and quite anti-inflammatory. So again, maybe the forms of B12 can be an issue there. Do you think the cyanocobalamin is toxic or it's just not as good as the methylcobalamin? I don't want my patients or clients taking it, even though it's a tiny amount. I was at a conference where a guy got up, a health conference, and he said it's got less cyanide than, than a cigarette. And I was like, that doesn't make me feel any better. I'm not telling my clients to go out and smoke. What are we doing? You know, the reality is you still got to then detox, clear that. It does help with absorption. They say that you absorb more, but all those studies are based on serum B12. Is it getting into the cells? That's another question. Mm. Yeah, no, particularly because I work in fertility and then I'm working in healthy aging and healthy aging, I don't want them to have any toxins or chemicals. There's enough things we can't control. So let's control the things we can and go for better forms. Is it the same as cyanide? There's a, the uh, no, cyanide. I guess it's in a cyanide. It's like a molecule. They're not giving you cyanide as in poison, but it's similar in cigarettes. You've got these things, but it's still something that has to go through the liver that could potentially cause a bit of sedative stress and reactive molecules. Yeah, I choose not okay. to have that. So you, in your practice, you try to measure if someone's an overmethylator or an undermethylator? No. Okay. All right. Explain. Yeah. I guess for me, I have to be honest, the first time I heard, I get, I came from probably a little bit more of a conservative background, working in a government laboratory, in a public hospital. We would talk about hyper and hypomethylation, particularly to do with epigenetics, mm -hmm. because we know when there is high or low methylation that affects gene expression, and that has very big clinical outcomes around mental health and all sorts of things. But the over and under methylation I guess the theory behind that, and I guess there's a lot of symptoms that are attached to it and testing when I moved in this area, they used to do it with histamine too. They'd say, if you've got high histamine, 
then you're either low or high or this or that. And the reality is histamine can be influenced by so many things as well. Yeah, I don't subscribe to the over under methylator. And I think sometimes people then come in and they've already diagnosed themselves. I can't have this supplement because I'm an over methylator. It's actually, you need that supplement. Look at your genes, look at what's going on, look at your bloods. Forget that diagnosis. I can help you. Just leave that at the door. <laughs> I've always been a little skeptical of that. I agree with you that histamine, measuring serum histamine, could be from a whole bunch of stuff, right? Yeah. In, in saying that, though, I don't yeah. want to disrespect William Walsh, who came up with a lot of this stuff, because he's done some amazing work. And I think now he's actually doing some studies with one of my colleagues at psychiatrist. And I think now they are trying to be using methionine and doing things differently. But even that group of symptoms that is what a lot of people classify themselves as, they could just fit into so many things. And I guess for me as a scientist who used to measure methyl groups on DNA to determine, I just found that right. a little bit arbitrary to diagnose someone like that. So I never really subscribed to that stuff. So you're just mainly looking at, you never, do you ever treat overmethylation, for example, or do you see people who are overmethylated? Is that a thing? Do you mean having, they've had some supplements and they've got like palpitations, anxiety, they're reacting to methyls? Is that what you mean? Yeah. I don't, again, I'm talking based on how it's used in the functional medicine space. I guess they have too many yeah. methyl groups from supplements or whatnot. Yeah. So I've had people come to me and say, I'm an overmethylator and I have reacted to supplements. So I've definitely heard it from patients and I believe they probably have reacted in some way. Um, but I've never had that. I've never had someone and I have seen obviously a lot of people over the 20 years, particularly even the public hospital, even with the not so good forms of folates and Bs, but I have never had someone deal with that. Okay, so it's mainly undermethylation is what you're worried about. Somebody who's not getting yeah. enough yeah. methyl groups or nutrients that are going to feed into that. Yeah, and if I think that they have got adequate, I'm not even sure there is an overmethylated thing because the whole pathway slows down when you have too much things happen. There are mm. things that, that we actually know because we look at enzyme kinetics. A lot of this stuff is cell culture work. It's not in humans, obviously, but we look at animal model cell culture works. And the body has regulatory mechanisms. What I think can happen in some people perhaps is, this is folate though. I don't know people, some people react to B12, but with folate is a polyglutamic acid. It's got glutamates. Some people are sensitive to glutamine, like MSGs and stuff. So mm. there could be some other potential things that are going on, or maybe they've got some stuff going with neurotransmitters and maybe there's a link somewhere. I'm not denying it, but yeah, definitely not sure how my scientific brain to make those connections. Okay. No, I, I think that makes sense. Yeah. My philosophy is that you need to be able to measure something very yes. clearly. It's got to be specific. It cannot be like histamine, which could mean anything. It, it's got to be yeah. a specific measurement that is valid that, and homocysteine is a very good measurement. For example, yes. if you haven't, if you have enough methylation, so if your homocysteine is high, it's likely you're not having enough methyl groups. Correct. And then you could say, is methylmalonic acid specific for B12? Yes, just B12. Okay. The B12. Is there any other pests? Yeah, specifically adenosyl, actually, not methyl. It's adenosyl cobalamin, but we, I guess, use that as a surrogate for B12 getting into the body and into the cell. Mm, got it. So is there 
any other test, reliable test besides homocysteine? You're, I guess you said the organic acids. Yeah. Um, yeah, organic acids. What other kind of tests? Yeah. Yeah, homocysteine, I think, would be the, probably the easiest one. But if you are doing functional testing, do an oat test. Look for those folate markers. Look for those B markers because you get quite a bit in oat test. So you're going to look for metabolites that are linked with B vitamin metabolism. And then you can link mm -hmm. that back to methylation because the reality is, what is methylation? It's folate and B vitamin metabolism. It's folate and Bs in a big metabolic pathway, mm -hmm. passing methyl groups. Understanding these levels of, of Bs and folate is going to help you understand methylation at a deeper level. I think organic acids, and I said the methylation profile by Doctor's Data, which actually has S-adenosylmethionine, and she has SAMI in it. You can look at the SAMSA ratio. So if you're actually wanting to know about methylation potential, you can look at S-adenosylmethionine, which is the methyl donor in the body, and then that's the byproduct, uh, S-adenosylhomocysteine and that ratio, and that can give you a really good idea of methylation is in your ability to methylate estrogens, stress hormones, DNA, lipids, proteins, et cetera. Interesting. Okay. And when you're looking at genetic tests, are you also looking at polygenic scores or you're looking at single variants mainly? Yes. The polygenic, yes. I guess I still probably do a lot of it in my head. Obviously there are reports now that do that for us, which is great. I have actually been involved with companies behind the scenes because I do some consulting for helping develop these tests. I found it difficult with the polygenic score because if you think about something like MTHFR too, like you need to weight these things. Like some SNPs are going to have a bigger weight in that algorithm than others. So there was an Asian company actually that wanted to do some stuff with weight loss and obesity and all these SNPs. And we just couldn't get the polygenic score together for it. It's quite complicated, but stuff like methylation, that's a bit easier because you can get, we've got good evidence and you can go, that one's a strong SNP, that one's a little one, but together. Yeah, so I do a bit in my head, but also there are some reports now that I think bring some of this stuff together relatively well, like with methylation or vitamin D or simple stuff. But I think the big stuff, as I said, like a health outcome or weight and obesity, I'm not sure if you're there yet with those sort of big polygenic scores. I think, I don't know, I guess it's AI, right? It's just it's inputting the right information and having a way to weight that evidence. So there is a nutrigenomics. Yeah. Yeah. They came up with some guidelines. Yeah. So I, I think the polygenic, I guess there's different things in genetics. So you have uh, polygenic stuff that looks at many thousands or, or could be a million variants or millions of variants and that you need AI and machine learning to do. And then there's ones that you could look at less variants, a couple of variants, 10, 20, hundred, right? This a whole range of what's considered uh, in terms of where self decode is at each each polygenic score that we have has a different level of evidence behind it. Meaning there's some models that are good, some that are not as good. But one of the things that we're, we're doing is val validating the models against populations, including the UK biobank, including other biobanks, and then seeing how predictive they are. So in terms of polygenic scores, self-decode, and you could sound a little biased, but I've looked at all these stuff out there. It's hands down better than anything else out there for mm -hmm. polygenic risk scores. And for the other stuff, it's much, it's just hypothesis based. If you're looking at individual SNPs and trying to put some things together, you're developing hypothesis. You're not testing it against the population. 
what we did in South Dakota is we tried to, we want, we were curious, like what happens if you take a couple snips and MTHFR is the exception, right? But if you took a couple random snips that you would find in PubMed, that a lot of these other companies have, we put it through our models and it wasn't predictive of anything. And that's where the science is at, is that you could find, when you do a study, mm-hmm. these GWAS studies, you find SNPs that are predictive, but then if you take that same SNP and bring it to somebody else, it doesn't have the same predictive power because it's, it's a little bit of data mining, but it's also that it was on the exact population that you tested. And if you just take any other population, it often doesn't cross over, which is why you have uh, all these contradictions with these, you have a SNP and then another study will say it's not predictive. And then another study says it is. But when you look at these polygenic risk scores, you're taking all these SNPs together and then you're validating it on a database that has multiple ancestries. And so you have to do a cross ancestry validation, which is, which is what we're doing. The ethnicity thing is a really big thing. And I guess you got the power of AI as well, but we did end up finding some good results, not necessarily with MTHFR, but other methylation related SNPs like MTHFD1 with growth restriction. And anyway, we ended up over the years, it was 10 years in research, came up with this hundred SNP chip that we thought was really predictive of certain pregnancy and fertility outcomes. We then try to replicate this in New Zealand, which is just our neighbor next door. And we did not. (laughs) see, even though we'd done it in That's different exactly parts of Australia, 100%. Adelaide and whatever. Yeah. And what we realize is because- And New Zealand have, has a similar ethnic makeup. No, it's because we think it's because of the Maori. They actually have quite a different ethnicity. So even though, yeah, so we ended up realizing, and I think most people know this in genetics now too. It's only pharmac- That's the big thing holding pharmacogenetics back, right? Is all the ethnicity stuff, but it's the ethnicity. So when we looked at the population, in the public hospital- that we were trying to use this in to be predictive. Oh, they were. It's actually, uh, actually quite a mixed population in New Zealand and a lot mm. of native and Maoris and things like that, whereas ours was done more so on Caucasians, not so much. We didn't have a lot of Indigenous people, but even our Indigenous populations are very different, very different. The New Zealanders come from the Pacific Islands. So, yeah, it's the ethnicity. But I think if but even when you have, even when you have the same ethnicity, Sometimes even just like yes. an Italian, you, you like ethnicity is in Caucasian, right? You could have Italians that are going to have different than Germans. And then if you're, you have two groups of Germans, they could do, they could be different kind of ethnic groups within the Germans. And so uh, a lot of these things don't replicate, but when you're dealing with large amounts of data, even if one or two things don't replicate or whatever, you're looking at a much bigger picture and then you're validating that whole picture. And, and you're doing it, you're, you're using Ancestry as well. So that's what Self-Decode is doing. And in terms of, I mean, there's no other company that's doing it that I've seen. And I've looked no. at all of them. And then there's companies that claim to do it, but then you have to validate the models. Like when you look at actually what they're doing, they could be, you could claim to be looking at polygenic scores, but then you look at how many SNPs they're using, what studies they're doing. Like you could see that they're not validating these models. It, because it it, it's, it takes a lot to do it properly. It's very complex. And so I you need that expertise. You're, you're comparing against these populations as well. So you're actually looking at that. So even though you're doing this, which I think this is the way the future, Joe, like that's what you have to do. That's where we're going next, right? We've learned about these single SNPs. To be honest, even in research, you can't even publish single SNP stuff anymore. Even the academics and the 
the journals won't even accept that stuff. It's got to be pathways. It's got to be polygenic. We've moved on and you definitely would be leading the way in that. And I said, there are other companies trying to do it, but I'm, I'm not sure yet. I think the power of AI is, is what is, is necessary. Big databases. But even though you do all that, could I ask you a question? If you were thinking about the hard hitting genes, because there are things that I look for, right? I always look for, even though I'm, so in Australia too, we are constrained by some of our guidelines in the medical model. And I do try to tick the boxes most of the time because I do a lot of education with the testing companies like in Australia and what we do. And there's one that I tend to use a lot, it's got 160 genes. But to be honest, I just go for the ones that I think, and they are like, I look at all the methylation stuff, not just MTHFR, but the whole methylation pathway. But I look for APOE because I think it's significant. I look for BDNF. I look for COMPT. I look for PEMPT with choline. What else do I look for? But there's some of the main ones. Would you say that when I say that, do you go, yeah, these are SNPs that we have found, even though it's not polygenic, to actually have good research? And what we haven't for? tested all. Yeah, we so. haven't tested all of them, but we're actually include. So all the ones that you named, we have. Oh, you got them all. Including you got them all. Yeah, yeah, we've got them all. So if you just type it in, it'll come up. As in terms of PEMT. Yeah. yeah, if I have a complicated patient that doesn't, that is complicated, as in I need to know more. It's not just my, not, I think my brain's great, but it doesn't answer all the questions. If I have a complicated patient, even though we are restricted by certain guidelines, if you want to fit the medical model, because as a genetics is starting to get some regulations, I will always run it through self-decode because I'm going to get more information and I'm going to have the ability to look for things that, that I can't see. There's just so much more data. And obviously you group things. I can go, okay, cool. There is some mental health stuff going on here. Or like, so I will go to self-decode for that when, it's, like, when I need to know more. Yeah. And so we used to have this blog where we had genes. We had 650 of these blog posts where we grouped them by the genes and we gave you like a risk score for the genes. Stop that because again, we were trying to go for stuff that is that, that you can validate in a mainstream way, right? You can't really validate in the sense of okay, you, there's no UK biobank for PEMT levels yeah. in the blood, right? You can't validate PEMT in the blood. You're looking at a few SNPs here, there, it's but it is I would say it's in the realm of hypothesis. But given that the we do have a lot of functional medicine customers who do want to look into that stuff. So we are providing it and we have it now where you can look at that kind of stuff. And we tell you like, just based on the available data, here's what PEMT levels are or BDNF or mm. D2 or whatever it is. Yep. And then you can easily look at that stuff and along the, alongside the polygenic risk scores. I try to, I, I, we have a whole list of things that if you have certain genes that you want us to add, we can. And we can just pull all the SNPs together. Again, it's hypothesis, but if, if you have somebody that knows what they're doing, potentially you could use some hypothesis to build the picture together. It's just that for, it, it goes together with a lot of training. And again, it's not even stuff that we can validate. So it's, you're going to build a whole training program against something that you can't completely validate. So it's something that we're just going to be providing for people who know what they're doing. Because it's, it is what a lot of practitioners want. So we we're providing that to them. But no, is there any other genes? Is there any genes that you particularly want besides the ones you listed? Cause all the ones you listed, we already have. Yeah. yeah. I have a lot of success with choline. The reason I say that is, you know, 
even though the trials, the studies are quite small, 30, 40 people or whatever, but they do suggest these people require more choline. If they have a low choline diet, they get signs of choline deficiency pretty quick with fatty liver, et cetera. But I have personally, in clinic, genetics is great. It guides you certain things or even just with supplements. You don't always, not often that you get someone has a supplement and goes, oh my God, I feel so great. Maybe the odd B12 if they're low. But I have given phosphatidylcholine to the people that need it. And I do base it very much on genetics and whatever's going on with PEMP, MTHFD1, other SNPs. And I do get good success with that. So I love all the choline stuff. I only probably introduced that six, seven years ago when I read the research. And so I love all those things. We can talk about all, now that we've connected, we can talk about all this stuff offline as well. And I'm sure we can continue the conversation. (laughs) Absolutely. So you like MTHFD1 as well, right? True. Even though there's not tons of information, before I started my research, someone published one paper linked with neural tube defects. So I included it in my research and I did see associations. And then there has been some links with choline, even though the research isn't great, but it's definitely one that I like to look at. And it's what feeds into MTHFR and may even help me on the odd occasion decide to use a folinic acid rather than 5-methyl. Oh, interesting. Okay. So it is something that you'll look at. We could add it to the list of genes that we make a report on if it, if that's something that you're interested in. Yeah, I would be very happy to speak to you offline. Maybe the listeners don't want to hear me just reel off all these snips. And some, if they're big genetic nerds like us, you're probably loving all of this, but otherwise they're like, what are they going on about? But yeah, I'm happy to send you the ones I'm interested in, or if you've got questions, that'd be great. I think for all of us who are moving forward in this area, what we want as practitioners, because I don't have a lab anymore, functional medicine practitioners don't have the ability to test. And even if we did, we don't have the resources and the capacity in the database that you have. So I think being able to learn from self-decode as well, because I have to say, even though I'm a geneticist and I like to think of myself as an expert, the expert in Australia, I've definitely turned to self-decode to look at the research and stuff as well. It's all those blogs you spoke about and single snips. I've read lots of those, believe me. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Sounds good. All right. Awesome. for com- Thanks for coming on. Awesome for having you. Yeah. Yeah. And great to have a chat. I hope that all the listeners enjoyed that too. And uh, yeah, good luck with it all. And I'm hope to speak to you more about cool genetic reports and look forward to seeing all the methylation stuff. Definitely. Where can people find you? Yeah. So my business is Your Genes and Nutrition. But if you just look up my name, Dr. Denise Furness, you can go to the website. If you want to get genetic testing done, if you're in the US, obviously you've probably got self-decode stuff to look at. But yeah, you can find me there. I've got a free Facebook group too, just the Your Genes and Nutrition community. And I pop in most Fridays, some Fridays, answer questions. It's a mix of practitioners and just general people interested in health. So yeah, if you want to find me, come and find me. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks again. Have a great day. 67% of listeners aren't following the show. So please don't forget to show your support by hitting the follow button now. You'll not only be supporting the show, but also investing in yourself and your health journey, all while helping to keep us ad-free.